The Biblical Foundations Bible Study, online at biblicalfoundationsbiblestudy.com. Taught by Chris Martin, this course has been created to demonstrate the importance of biblical literacy in the 21st century. Good morning and welcome to the Biblical Foundations Bible Study. I am Chris Martin and I'm so glad you could join us this morning. We've got a great study, a character study on John the Disciple, uh, later known as the Apostle John. And uh, we originally decided to start our new teaching series with a character study on John because he's the author of the book that we were going to be studying for the next year, the book of the Revelation, the last book in our Bible that John wrote. We've had a change of plans. I learned on Tuesday, much to my surprise uh, and a little bit to my chagrin, that Pastor Greg has decided on his own to preach the book of Revelation in the Sunday morning service. He's going to start in September, and it's going to be a little bit different than I would have done. Uh, Greg's going to do uh, 10 weeks on the book of Revelation, which requires an average of about two chapters a week. Uh, his goal is to finish it up uh, in time for another Thanksgiving lesson, uh, and then the Advent, uh, Christmas messages, uh, and then he'll go on to something new in January. But uh, September, October, and November, he's going to be preaching through the book of the Revelation. So I can't teach on top of Pastor Greg for a wide variety of reasons. So what I've decided to do is do another study, and then when we finish that, sometime in 2021, then we'll probably move into the book of the Revelation because enough time will have passed since Greg did it, uh, and it went on to something else. Uh, I've spent the last month getting ready to do the book of the Revelation and thinking about John, and no matter what we were going to do, I was going to do today on the disciple John, uh, because after spending the last two years on the Apostle Paul, we needed a change of pace, a new guy, and some new uh, books of the Bible to study. And I've decided in keeping with my theme of John to start his gospel. So starting next Sunday, I'm going to be teaching John chapter 1. Not sure if we're going to get past the third verse or not. I'm uh, thinking about just limiting to the first three verses. I may go through verse 7, but I haven't decided yet. Uh, but we're going to be doing the first couple of verses of chapter 1 of the gospel of John. And we will spend about at least 10 months, maybe a year on the Gospel of John. I've not outlined it. I haven't done chapter breakdowns yet, uh, but I did enough work this week to realize it's going to take me at least 10 or 11 months to get through the Gospel of John, which should be a great study because the synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, give us a chronological perspective on the life and ministry of Christ. The Gospel of John is totally different. It's designed to prove something, and we're going to tackle it next week. You'll see it in the next couple of lessons as we get into the why about the Gospel of John. I don't want to get too far ahead of myself, but you'll see why it's real important that we study it. A lot of people, when they read through their Bible for a year, a lot of pastors encourage them to start in the Gospel of John. There's a number of reasons why, but one of the big theological reasons is what we're going to tackle in the next couple of weeks about why John wrote his Gospel and how it differs from Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So we're going to be tackling that. I think you're really going to enjoy it. It's got some tremendous application. I'm really excited about teaching it. But before we get there, we got to look at our guy, our writer, the Apostle 
John, and forgive me uh, if my brain is still stuck on Paul and I mentioned the word Paul or the name Paul rather than John. Uh, after two years uh, in studying Paul, he's still fresh on my mind, and uh, I think about him or things we studied about him almost every day. But I'm slowly transitioning to John, and you'll see as we get through our character sketch why he's a great guy. Uh, we're going to do some Bible study this morning. Uh, we're going to look at some things he was involved in, but I'm going to start by giving you a character sketch. Then I'm going to do some life lessons before I end uh, with kind of an epilogue about his life. So I want to start with just a quick overview about everything we know biblically and a little bit extra biblically about John, the writer of the fourth gospel that we're going to be studying for the next year. Uh, a couple of points, biographical points. Number one, he was a young man. We don't know exactly when he was born, but according to everything we know from Scripture and according to what we know from the early church fathers writing at the end of his life and immediately after he died, the people that he taught as students, that he discipled, give us an idea of generally how old he was. It appears he was given what we know about the end of his life uh, it appears that during his time with Christ, he would have been a teenager. He would have been called by Christ, would have started Christ's earthly ministry when he was about 15 or 16 years old. By the time of the crucifixion, he would have been 18 or 19 years old. In our world, that's a high school senior. In our world, that's a college freshman. In his world, that was a full-blown adult. At, at 18 or 19, in his world, you'd be married, you'd be working full-time, you might have even had one or two kids at that point in time. Uh, it still would have been young, but it would have been very much into adulthood as opposed to our world that has uh, prolonged adulthood primarily due to education. Uh, so he was relatively young, and he clearly would have been the youngest of the disciples. We don't know of anybody else that was as young as he was when Christ called him. The other thing we know is that he was a cousin. We know his mother. His mother, uh, we know his mother and his father, but we know his mother was uh, Salome. And uh, his mother was the sister of Mary, the mother of Jesus. So that would make he and his brother James uh, first cousins with Jesus. Uh, and we know he was also a son. And we know his dad was Zebedee. Uh, and so if uh, we know his mom was related to Mary, we know his father uh, by his occupation. And uh, we don't know if they had more sons or daughters, but we know he had an older brother uh, named James. Uh, they're known in Scripture as James and John, the son of Zebedee, so they can uh, distinguish them from the uh, other James, uh, who was also among the disciples, who was the son of Alphaeus. But the sons of Zebedee, uh, we know a fair, amount about, a fair amount about because they were big leaders within the early group of the, of the 12. Uh, they had a fishing company. Father Zeb owned a fishing company. And we know for a fact that James and his little brother, John, worked for the fishing company. And it is highly, highly likely that Peter and his brother, Andrew, also worked for Zeb. We don't know it explicitly, but the fact we know about them, we know Peter and his brother Andrew were also fishermen. They were at the same time working on boats together when Christ called them. Uh, John and Peter were inseparable. Uh, 
uh, during the, the time that the disciples were working with Christ and then during the leadership of the Jerusalem church after Christ ascended back into heaven. So there's a number of significant inferences and a couple of comments from the early church fathers that indicate they all work together for Papa Zeb, uh, the direct biological father for John and his big brother James, uh, and then uh, a de facto father uh, for Peter and uh, Andrew. We know nothing about their parents, but if they were working for Zebedee, he obviously had a significant fishing business, uh, and as we're going to see later on, he probably also had a contract to supply fish to the priests that worked in Jerusalem. We know that because later in Jesus' ministry, during his trial before uh, Pilate, uh, John was able to get in because he knew the high priest. The only way John would have had any way of knowing the high priest was if he was an intermediary running fish to all the different priests that worked in the temple complex there in Jerusalem. So it's highly likely that Papa Zeb had a very successful fishing operation that provided fish either to the family of the high priest or more likely all of the priests that were working in the temple complex there in Jerusalem during the first century. They lived in Bethsaida. Uh, there's two Bethsaidas. One's on the far north corner, just a little bit to the east. The other one's on the northwest corner. They're from the one on the northwest corner. They're from south of Capernaum. Bethsaida of Galilee, uh, as opposed to Bethsaida of Julius. And so Bethsaida of Galilee is where they're from. And it's on that western shore of the Sea of Galilee, as you can see on my uh, little map. Now, when they got older, Peter and Andrew moved to Capernaum. And there's some inferences that James and John or their parents may have moved to Capernaum, but for their calling and for a long time before their calling, they were in Bethsaida. And so they're from the nor northern side of Galilee. Jesus was obviously from Nazareth. Uh, they probably didn't get together that much with the cousins and the aunts and the uncles, but they would have gotten together uh, at some point. So there would have been some family familiarity and uh, would have been a factor in Jesus' knowledge of them when he called them into his uh, circle. This is a picture of the Sea of Galilee looking up on one of the hills, looking down on Bethsaida. Uh, there to the right would have been the village of Bethsaida. I'm a little image. Off to the left, right before the Sea of Galilee turns to the north, would have been Capernaum. And so that area would have been exactly where these guys fished before Christ called them to be fishers of men. This is a view down on the shore uh, at Bethsaida, looking out to the east at sunrise. And so this is a sunrise picture, and you can see how beautiful and calm the Sea of Galilee is. It's not that far to the other side, but you can clearly see the hills on the other side. Uh, and it's uh, a beautiful place. And if you go there, you can imagine what it would have been like uh, because the geography has not changed very much at all. Obviously, on land now we've got big buildings, uh, but the hills and the, the way it slopes down into the Sea of Galilee hasn't changed hardly at all. And so uh, it, it's very beautiful if you ever get a chance to go. He is also a brother, as I mentioned. His brother is James, older brother. We don't know how much older, but realistically, we could assume probably four, five, or six years uh, because James uh, seems to uh, take on more of a strong leadership position after Christ dies, although he doesn't live very long, or Christ's crucifixion and his, his ascension after his resurrection. Uh, but James doesn't live very long. James is ultimately uh, martyred. 
by the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem, and scholars have pegged it at about 44 AD, so about 11 or so years after uh, Christ's crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension, uh, James was murdered by the Jewish priest because of his leadership of the disciples that remained. So he's one of the first Christian martyrs, uh, but he was one of the first called by Christ, and as we'll see, he was in the inner circle uh, with John and Peter. Uh, we know that uh, they would have grown up together. They would have played together as boys. They then went to work for Daddy Zeb's fishing business and fished together until Jesus called them. We don't quite know what their dad's reaction was when they left. We don't know what dad's reaction was if Peter and Andrew were also employees, if four of his best fishermen got called away by Jesus. Uh, but you can imagine how it would have created some consternation with uh, Zebedee thinking he was losing some of his great labors, uh, not to mention the fact he would wonder what would happen to the legacy of his company because the tradition then was that the oldest son, James, would carry on in the tradition of the father. So that wouldn't happen if Jesus took uh, both of his boys, as well as Peter and Andrew, and took them off to do other ministry type stuff. So those are stories we'll have to figure out in heaven, but you can imagine some of those dynamics among the boys and their father. Their nickname, the Gospel of Mark tells us, are Sons of Thunder. And if you've got rambunctious grandsons, or if you had rambunctious little boys, you hear that label and you can immediately picture what Sons of Thunder would mean. It would mean loud, it would mean rambunctious, it would mean laughing all the time, uh, not exactly exercising a fair amount of uh, maturity. You could imagine some practical jokes, uh, but you could just imagine the general pandemonium of testosterone-driven, rambunctious little boys that apparently that label continued up into their young adult years, because in the Gospel of Mark, they're called by their Greek name, nickname, Sons of Thunder. So these guys started out really rambunctious, really loud, probably partiers, and with a nickname like Sons of Thunder, you could probably tell that the neighbors knew they were coming when they were still a few blocks away. So with that little bit of insight, we can start to develop a little character trait uh, about John that we'll see develop a little more. He was also in the inner circle of Jesus. We know this because a number of times in Scripture, Jesus teaches this smaller group all by themselves for a couple of events, like the transfiguration. He doesn't take all 12 of the disciples. He just takes a couple. The inner circle was Simon Peter. And then the two brothers, James and John, the sons of Zebedee. Now, no one knows why those three. No one knows everything they did just by themselves. But we know enough from Scripture to know that was the inner circle. The rest of the disciples did a lot with Jesus. They were with him every day, but they didn't do everything with Jesus. And then there's another group of 70 disciples that are mentioned but not named in Scripture that would have less of a uh, weekly interaction with Christ, but still more than the rest of the general public. And so they were a gr larger group of, of disciples. 
but the 12 were his most intimate and the three were the inner circle of the 12, the most intimate of the most intimate. So that's why it is significant about how he was that close to Christ. And we'll see how that plays out in a few minutes. Uh, as I mentioned on the slide, his inner circle we see at the transfiguration with just the three of them. And I also gave you a cross-reference of Mark 13 showing how it sometimes uh, he taught just them or sometimes just the three of them plus Andrew, Peter's brother. So we see some smaller groups from time to time, but the three that we see over and over in small proximity to Christ are those three, Peter and the brothers James and John. We also know he was the disciple Jesus loved. It's interesting because his gospel is the one where we get that name. And as you'll see as we get into his gospel, it's really unique for a number of reasons, but one of the most unique reasons is that he does not call himself by name, but he refers to himself in the third person. So he referred to himself as the other disciple who's with Peter that we know from Matthew, Mark, or Luke is John. And we know because of the way it describes him, particularly in reference to the Last Supper, when he lays his head down on Christ's shoulder or on the top of his chest, that he was the disciple Jesus loved. So we get the name, the beloved disciple. That's where I got the name for today's lesson. Uh, and uh, you'll see as we get into his gospel why that was true. And the love would have come from a variety of different avenues. It would have come initially because uh, Jesus would have known him as his little cousin from their childhood. He would have known him as the baby in the group, the youngest one of the disciples. And then he obviously had the ability to know his heart. He knew his mind. He knew his commitment. He knew his zeal. He knew his uh, knowledge of his Hebrew scripture. He knew his heart, and he knew because of everything that he did during the ministry of Christ that John genuinely, absolutely, unconditionally loved Jesus. And so he is the disciple that Jesus loved. It doesn't mean he didn't love all the others. It didn't mean he didn't love other people like his parents and his brothers and his sisters, but he clearly loved John in a unique way. I can relate to it. I've got a younger cousin I'm particularly close to that I grew up with. Uh, love a whole bunch of people, but I love my cousin Kevin. You may have had a cousin or a sibling that you were particularly close to, and it doesn't mean you don't love other people, but there's a unique bond, a unique love of someone because the time you spent together, the memories you created together, uh, the time you spent talking and sharing and laughing together, you know their heart, you know their mind, and you know they have a special love for you and you've got a special love for them. That's the nature of Jesus' bond with John and the nature of John's bond with Jesus. Really fascinating. Quick comment on the Last Supper. We know from the seating arrangement just how special John was. In a lot of the art that exists of the Last Supper, it's flat wrong. The Renaissance painters, painters didn't know Roman history. A lot of them didn't even know their Bible to know who sat on whose side. But we know from a formal Roman slash Greek culture that for any kind of formal dinner, dinner where you would invite guests, dinner where you would invite travelers, a dinner with business colleagues, all had the same seating structure. It was either U-shaped in terms of a strict U, like I've got up on the screen, or a soft U that would be what we would call a semicircle. But it would always have, if you're looking 
towards the you, kind of the way I've got it on the screen, with the host in the second seat to your left. And the reason they did that is that the person of relational significance sat to your right. The person of positional significance, in other words, a valued traveler, a long-lost family member, a business partner, would sit to your left. So the relational significance would sometimes be the wife of the host. Sometimes it would be the oldest son of the host. It would be someone that the host had a unique, personal, loving relationship with. So as you can see from the outline, when Jesus has John sit to his right, he's having him sit in the position of relational authority. In other words, the person that Jesus among that group would have felt the closest to. The positional authority, interestingly, went to the money keeper, went to the guy they trusted enough to hold all their money. The guy they did not know, but Jesus did, was about to betray him. Now, opposite the table, in the corner closest to the edge where the servers are, the first one served the meal as they went around the table, would have been Peter. And that's the position of the co-host or the position of the leader of the meal. And so the person that sat in that position would be someone like an oldest son or a most senior employee or the oldest daughter in the family if you didn't have sons. And so that's why Simon Peter's at the opposite side of the table. He's got the position of the guy that's responsible for ordering the meal, for making sure the, the servants know when to bring it in and what to bring in and what order. So Jesus has got John on one side showing a loving relationship, Judas on the other, elevating him in a position of authority. We could do a whole lesson on that, but I'll save him until we get deeper into the book of John. And then we've got Peter sitting opposite him and the other disciples spread around. So if you were to walk into the room, this is what it would have looked like with John immediately to Jesus' right, Judas to his left, the rest of the disciples all the way around the room, close enough and intimate enough to talk, to laugh, to share, to be able to listen to Jesus as he shared his thoughts. Uh, and it would have been a very, very intimate meal for them, one that they had had many, many times before, but on that final night in Jerusalem would have had very unique significance for all of them. John, as you also probably know from your other Bible studies or time in church, was also the only disciple at the cross. All of them are scared to death. John also would have been scared to death. The other disciples feared if they showed up, they were highly likely to be put up on a cross as well, and they stayed far, far away. John, as a glimpse of the intensity of his love uh, for his Lord Jesus, was the only disciple who came to the cross. He would have witnessed the nails going in, he would have witnessed the cross going up, and he would have been there for all three hours of the crucifixion, seeing all of the miracles of the crucifixion that I taught you about if you were in the class when we studied Matthew. Uh, but he would have been there through the entire time with Mary, the mother of Jesus, with Mary Magdalene, with the other women who were there. And that is when, in his last breath, Christ looked down from the cross and said to John, this is your mother now, and to Mary, looked at John and said, this is now your son. From that point on, John took care of Mary. As far as we know, 
he took care of her in Jerusalem until she died. There's a Catholic tradition that says they both moved to Ephesus. And we don't know for sure that Mary ever went there. If you go there today, uh, there's a home that, that somebody said, I think this is Mary's home, and they'll charge you money to go visit it, and the Catholic tour guides will tell you it was Mary's home. But it wasn't identified as such until the end of the 1800s. Prior to that, no one ever said this was Mary's home, and the only reason they said it was Mary's home was because a nun in Germany, if I remember my history correctly, had a dream and said, I think that home was Mary's, and for whatever reason, the Catholic Church and a whole bunch of tour guides took it as Mary's house. There is no contemporary first and second and third century evidence that Mary lived in Ephesus. It appears that John stayed with her in Jerusalem when Mary died in the 60s, maybe even the late 50s, early 60s in the first century, then John felt free to leave, and then John went to Ephesus. There is second and third century evidence from the early church fathers that Mary died in Jerusalem, directly contradicting the later Catholic tradition that Mary moved to Ephesus and then died in Ephesus. So if you ask me to guess, I would say she stayed in Jerusalem until her death in the late 50s, early 60s, and after Mary died, John was free of what Christ told him at the cross, and he moved on to Ephesus to continue doing uh, what Christ had told all the disciples to do, and that is teach and preach and share the good news of their Savior. It's also significant that he was the first man to see Jesus' empty tomb. I've got a, a little picture there, a screenshot of a younger man running. Uh, Peter most likely was in his late 20s or early 30s. Uh, as I mentioned, John would have been about 18 or 19 years old. Not surprising he could outrun Peter in a foot race if he was a decade or two uh, or a decade and a half uh, younger than Peter. And so uh, when uh, Mary Magdalene reports the stone has been rolled away, they run Scripture says John outruns Peter. He stands at the tomb, sees it's empty, waits for Peter. Peter goes in, and then John goes in behind him. I've got a little cross-reference for you to put this into context because there's a significant little takeaway here. It says in John chapter 20, verse 1, now on the first day of the week, that's uh, Sunday, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb while it was still dark and saw the stone already taken away from the tomb. She ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved, that's John, and said to them, they've taken away the Lord out of the tomb. We do not know where they've laid him. So Peter and the other disciple went forth and they were going to the tomb. The two were running together and the other disciple, that's John, ran ahead faster than Peter and came to the tomb first. And stooping and looking in, he saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he did not go in. And so Simon Peter also came following him and entered the tomb. So the other disciple who had come first to the tomb then also entered, and he saw and believed. I highlighted he saw and believed because he's the first person to believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ of everybody that saw the empty tomb. Mary Magdalene believes later when she sees Christ. Peter believes later when he sees Christ. John was so in tune 
and suddenly the lights went off in, in his brain in terms of him realizing the significance of the empty tomb when he put the pieces of the puzzle together and he saw the empty tomb and he believed in the resurrection of his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He's the only person in scripture that that was true of. Everybody else saw the empty tomb, had a whole bunch of questions, were very, very curious. They believed when they saw Jesus. John believed without having to see him. And it's a great little insight into character, great little insight into faith. One of the many reasons why I absolutely love this guy. We also know after the resurrection of Christ, after his ascension into heaven early in Acts, that he becomes an early church leader. In the book of Acts, we see him multiple times uh, up until Acts chapter 8, leading in the church. After Acts chapter 8, we don't see him, and I've got a life lesson on that in a couple of minutes, but he's an early church leader. When the Apostle Paul in Galatians was taking Barnabas back to Jerusalem, he comments on what happened when he was heading back to Jerusalem. It says in Galatians chapter 2, verse 9, in recognizing the grace that had been given to me, this is Paul writing, James, that's the brother of Jesus, and Peter and John, who were reputed to be pillars, gave to me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship so that we might go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Back when I taught you Galatians, I did a whole lesson on the right hand of the fellowship, told you what all that meant. But my point here is just simply him recognizing who the pillars, who the guys that held up the church in Jerusalem were. Now, at this point in time, when Paul is writing Galatians, over a decade has passed for Paul to go to Arabia, for Paul to intercede with the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit intercede with Paul and teach him about all of theology that he needed to know, know to go do his missionary journeys. So at this point in time, James, the brother of John, has already been killed. The leader of the church in Jerusalem was James, the brother of Jesus, the guy that wrote the book of James in your Bible. Peter, who was the leader of the disciples, and John, who was in the inner circle. And those three, Paul recognized uh, as of the mid to late 40s and early 50s of the first century were the leaders, the pillars of the church at Jerusalem. He's also an inspired writer. He's the writer of the Gospel of John, the little epistles of John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, at the very, very end of our New Testament, and the book of the Revelation. The Gospel of John, i got to comment on this real quick, because if you study this very long, uh, you get into a big debate about how do we really know that John wrote it. Uh, initially, the book of John ends, chapter 21, verse 24, by saying he wrote it. He says, this is the disciple who testifies to these things and who wrote them down. We know that his testimony is true. I'll tell you in a minute why he uses that plural pronoun, we, but it's a reference when he talks about, in, in chapter 21, uh, the disciple at the cross, the disciple going to see the empty tomb, all those things that I just read you portions of just a second ago, he says, that disciple is the guy that wrote this. We know from the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, who was with Peter when they were running to the tomb? They name him. It's John. We know who was with Peter at the transfiguration. It was John. We know from the other gospels a number of different things John was doing that when we see the parallel account in the book of John, 
you can identify who John calls the other disciple. That's him. So a number of people have said, well, wait a minute. Why in the world would he refer to himself in the third person? That seems either arrogant or crazy to me. I don't understand. Got to put understand a couple of things in context. Number one, the synoptic gospels mention John 20 independent times. I didn't even count the times when the stories uh, are repeated in two or three of the gospels. If it's the same event, I count it one time. There's 20 separate events. It would then be extremely unusual if John did not recount the ministry of Jesus in the fourth gospel and not also mention events involving John. He does. He just calls him the other disciple. We can identify him because he's always paired with Peter by name in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. He's simply described as the other disciple in the fourth gospel, and he's always a leader. We see that in the synoptic gospels. We see that in the fourth gospel, the gospel of John. Now, why in the world would he do that? We'll have to ask him when we get to heaven, but it's pretty obvious. The first one is, it's a statement of humility. He wants to make the Gospel of John 100% about Jesus. And as the writer, he's particularly sensitive not to do anything that would make it in some small way seem like it was him. That's the way you and I would write a Gospel. When Christ and I were walking up the Sea of Galilee, he told me dot, 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 and we would fill it all in. And we would pretend it's about him, but we would have ourselves so uh, prominently featured, it would indirectly be about us. John goes to the other end of the spectrum, and he says, I am not going to let anybody think this is remotely about me. I'm not even going to mention my name. His love of Christ was so much, he wanted to make it exclusively about Christ. And he's happy to mention the other disciples when they were involved in things, but his humility was such later in life when he wrote the gospel that he only mentions himself uh, in the third person. He never identifies himself as John. That repeats in the, uh, in the, the epistles in 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. Uh, in the book of the Revelation, he says, I'm John. Finally, when he got into his 80s, when he's a really older man, he finally uses his name. But in the Gospels, when he was a little bit younger, he did not do that at all. Now, it's significant to me historically that all of the early church fathers, including the men that John himself discipled, in other words, his Bible study group, after John died, wrote letters that still exist today, and John's friend said the fourth Gospel was authored by the disciple John that took care of Mary, that ultimately lived in Ephesus for the last couple of decades, that was imprisoned on the island of Patmos, and who was our Bible study teacher. That's essentially what all of them said in the first, second, and third century, is they are unanimous that John wrote the fourth gospel, wrote the three epistles, first, second, third John that bear his name, and also wrote the book of the Revelation. It's only centuries later, it's only in the 17th, 18th, 19th, and 20th century that liberal theologians started to look at it and go, wait a minute, although the Greek in the Gospel of John is elementary, it's still far better than an uneducated fisherman would have been able to throw together. And even though the Greek is somewhat simplistic, his penmanship could not have been such that he could have authored a book that would have been widely accepted as the Word of God. So liberal scholars were very critical 
of what he was doing uh, and as a result came up with all kinds of reasons why they argued that he was not uh, the writer of the fourth gospel. But I rely upon the testimony of those that knew him, that those that studied under his disciples, in other words, one generation removed, and even one generation beyond that, all of whom echoed, John wrote the fourth gospel. So based on his friends, based on his own disciples, John's own disciples that all pointed to John and never pointed to an anonymous author, never pointed to somebody by a different name, never pointed to another guy with the name of John that wasn't the disciple. None of that ever became an issue in theological studies until the last 200 years. That's what liberal scholars have done recently, but in the years after John's death, they were unanimous in the church and they all pointed to John being our writer. This is the most significant one. This guy is Papias. He looks kind of funny in this picture. No one has any clue what he looks like, but some artists have designated him and this is the one that's the, apparently the most popular idea of what he looked like. He's significant because he was uh, one of the first disciples of John. He lived in the, um, in the years uh, later in John's life. And later in John's life, he was the one who was studying under him that actually helped him write the Gospel of John. It is significant because when John is dead, his Gospels, his Epistle and the Book of Revelation were copied and passed among all the churches. We know as of about 120 AD that they started to pass around copies of Scripture that had a little paragraph introduction. The Gospel of Matthew would say this was written by Matthew the tax collector, the disciple of Jesus, that was the tax collector in Capernaum, who wrote this after Christ's death and who remains an apostle. So it'd be an introduction about Matthew, or Mark, or Luke. Papias wrote the introduction to the Gospel of John. We know that because he admits it in other writings. He said, I wrote the introduction to the Gospel of John that existed as of 120 AD, and he said, I wrote it for my teacher John, the disciple and the apostle, who is the author of the fourth Gospel, who's the author of the three epistles, who's the author of the revelation of Jesus Christ. So Papias, who writes the introduction, who said, I'm a student of John. John told me he was the writer of these five books in our Bible. And I know he's the writer of the five books because I heard all the stories from him in person. So Papias is our greatest evidence, our greatest link. And there's not a single scholar that I've ever read that has articulated a reason why Papias is a liar or better yet, why Papias can't be trusted. From everything else I've read, he was honest. He pastored for multiple decades. Uh, he ultimately was martyred. He died because of his faith. And he went to his death uh, proud of the fact that he met Jesus Christ through the testimony of John, the author of the fourth gospel. So Papias is tremendous testimony authenticity. First, second, third John, he wrote after his gospel, much later in life. Uh, he would have been in his early 80s. I'll teach you in a couple of minutes. 
they're very short books and they all have the theme of love. And I'll tie that together in a life lesson here in a minute. Book of the Revelation, Pastor Greg's going to start in September. I'll tackle it sometime in 2021. A little bit complicated, but once you understand it, a very powerful book. And that was written at the very, very end of his life, in his late 80s, before he ultimately died around 100 AD. So in the last 15, 20 minutes we've got, I want to give you some life lessons. I normally end a lesson with application. I'm going to give you Chris Martin's view of what the disciple John means to me. What life lessons have I gathered from studying him in scripture, from teaching him and the five books that he wrote? Kind of what are the life lessons when I look at the life of John and say, I want to mimic this. I want to adopt this in my life because of how closely he followed Jesus Christ and how well he knew Jesus Christ. So I've got four life lessons that I've gathered from his life, and I give these to you as kind of my uh, lesson and application for the lesson. Number one, willingness to be changed. We see in him, as I mentioned earlier, a guy that was one thing when Christ called him. Christ saw in him not what he was, but what he was going to be. And Christ saw in him a guy that could change, and we see in him a willingness to change. When Christ called him, he's a son of thunder. He's a rabble rouser. He's a hellion. He's a guy that just loves to make noise, laugh with his brother, cause practical jokes, uh, cause some trouble, and he's a son of thunder. We know from Scripture he also had an anger problem. When Christ sent them in to witness in a Samaritan village, they weren't real welcoming in the Samaritan village. John got angry and came back to Jesus and said, Hey, Jesus, they weren't very nice to us. Can we call down fire from heaven and burn every living human being in that village? And Christ would have rolled his eyes and said, no, that's not how we're going to share the good news. But it's clear from his reaction when they just simply hurt his feelings. They didn't beat him up. They didn't throw rocks at him. They just rejected his message. And he wanted to call down literally fire from heaven. That's an anger problem. Jesus worked on him. We also know arrogance. We know from Mark 9 and Luke 9 that they set up, they being James, his older brother, and John, set up their mother, their Jesus' aunt, and said, hey, why don't you go to Jesus and say, when he takes his throne, can my two boys be your leading generals? Can they be your right hand and your left hand? And she actually made the request. And so you can see early in the ministry, these guys think Jesus is going to be an earthly king, and they've got visions of being his leading generals. That's why they're there. It wasn't these grandiose ideas of heaven on earth or the spiritual realm. They wanted to lead a world government. We also see a desire for power because in Mark 10, John actually makes the request can I be one of your leaders? Can I be at your right hand when you take over? And so we see him doing it directly when mama's indirect approach didn't work. They try it directly themselves. And Jesus basically said, wait until you see where this is going. I'm not sure you really want what you're asking for. We'll see that play out in the gospel of John in a slightly different way, but we know early on in their ministry, 
John's got anger issues, arrogance issues, power driven, rabble rousers, and they were guys in need of a change. Fast forward to the end of Christ's ministry. This rabble rouser, practical joker, arrogant, power hungry idiot is now leading in the Jerusalem church. After about three decades in the Jerusalem church, he then moves to Ephesus and he leads in Ephesus for three more decades. He's our Bible writer, Gospel of John, the three epistles that bear his name, the book of the Revelation. He went through a massive maturity process. He went through a, a scrubbing both during Christ's earthly ministry and after Christ's ministry, where he learned what real leadership was, where he learned what it means to be humble. What does it mean to get rid of the old self and become more like Christ? So as we'll see in his writings, as we'll see in his life, as he progresses through Christ's earthly ministry, he sees things that make him realize the sin nature in himself that's driving him to do bad things, and see him wanting to become more Christ-like in all that he did and all that he said. So we see a guy that's willing to change. I take tremendous uh, uh, comfort in that, knowing we all need change. We all need our edges rounded off. We all need help becoming more Christ-like from the things that we do that we don't want to do. Lesson number two, willingness to use the sword of both truth and love. Now, this is fascinating because truth and love are the two main themes in all of his writings you see the concept of truth more in John's five books than any other Bible writer. You see the concept of love in John's five books, particularly his three epistles, more than any other gospel or Bible writer. Uh, in his writings, he uses the word truth 45 times, significantly more than Paul, significantly more than Matthew, Mark, or Luke, significantly more than James or any other gospel writer. He uses the word witness in the context of witness to the truth 71 times in his five books. In other words, all of his writing is built around being a witness to the truth and living the truth. But for him, truth is not academic. And truth is really not an opinion that you hold that you think is true. For John, he teaches truth is a lifestyle. I gave you a cross-reference, 3 John, the, the epistle of John, the 3 John epistle, uh, verse, chapter 1, verse 4. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. For him, it was active. It wasn't just something you held, held in your brain. 1 John chapter 2, verse 4, whoever says, I know him, in reference to Christ, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Other evidence of truth being a lifestyle, not an opinion. He's also the apostle of love. It's been described in his epistles that he covers love in so many different ways going in a circle that it's almost like a spiral staircase going up and going up and going up around this concept of love because in 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, he just hits this idea of love from every different angle you can, not as it relates to loving your kids or grandkids, not as it relates to loving a spouse, not as it relates to loving something like food, as it relates to loving the lost, the people who reject you the people who don't like your Bible and your Bible opinions, the people that reject Jesus Christ. 
that's what he's talking about for love, and he blends them together. It's why John 3.16 is one of our favorite verses because of how it starts. God so loved the world. He has multiple passages in John talking about love being Jesus' motivation. In his epistles, he talks to us about how we have got to love those who are unlovable, those whose lifestyles we do not like and we do not condone, we still have to love. And he has numerous comments in his epistles on this idea of love. He ends in uh, 1 John chapter 4 saying, Dear friends, let us love one another. For love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love, in reference to his neighbors, does not know God because God is love. Love was the cornerstone of his theology because it was the bridge to a lost world. He's not preaching fire and brimstone. He's not preaching legal rules. He's not preaching anything dogmatic other than love, other than the bridge to the lost that motivates Christians to get out and, and spread God's good news to those who so desperately need it. He ends, or I end, with John chapter 4, verses, uh, 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 1 John 4, verse 11. Dear friends, since God so loved, so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Another one of his love references, that spiral staircase goes round and round. And then he ends, verse 19, in the same chapter, chapter 4. We love... Because he, Christ, first loved us. Great verses. We can do a whole study on love. Uh, I may do it after the Gospel of John, but I'll cross-reference as we go through the Gospel of John, but the epistles are tremendous studies. Next life lesson, a willingness to labor in obscurity. Paul gets tremendous press in the New Testament. Peter gets tremendous press in the New Testament. For the guy who was in the inner circle, for the guy that Jesus loves, for the guy that was in the inner circle seeing all these things that not all the disciples got to see, you think he would have a bigger role. You think we'd see him more in the latter two-thirds of the book of Acts. You think Paul would talk about him more in his writings, but instead he labored in obscurity. He is mentioned in Acts chapter 8, verses 14, and he's not mentioned again in Jerusalem. And he's never mentioned in Scripture in Ephesus. We only know he's in Ephesus because of all the people that knew him there that commented on him in writings after his death. As I said, he probably stayed in Jerusalem for several decades, probably until the late 50s or early 60s. I personally believe he stayed until Mary died. He then walks or sails to Ephesus. We don't know how he got there, but it's quite a long ways away to go from Israel to the western side of modern-day Turkey, and he then set up shop in Ephesus. Why there? We don't know. Presumably God moved it on his heart to go there, but you know from our study of the book of Ephesians, you know from our study of the life of Paul, it was a major crossroads. It was a big city. There was massive worship of uh, Roman gods and goddesses there, particularly with the Temple of Diana. Uh, it was a major political hub economic hub, religious hub for pagan religions. It was a happening place. And it was also the launching point for all the other churches around there that Paul had helped establish. So there was numerous churches, seven of which we see in the book of the Revelation, that were just a day's walk from Ephesus, 
where Paul could teach, where Paul could share, where Paul could do all that. Sorry, Peter, that. John, sorry, yeah, I'm getting my guys mixed up, where John could teach or preach or share or counsel or whatever he's going to do in all those churches around him. But he labored in obscurity. Final point, a willingness to bloom where God plants you. We all want the spotlight on ourselves. John's human nature would have wanted the spotlight on himself. But he's totally content not having the, the spotlight of Scripture on him. He's totally content not having everybody make a fuss about him. He's just doing what God wanted him to do. I personally believe from my study of him that his spiritual gift was not teaching or preaching. We don't have a single example of John teaching or preaching anywhere once the, the, the earthly ministry of Jesus ended. We don't have an example of him preaching in Rome. We don't have an example of him preaching in Ephesus. We have him having followers, students that he told stories to, but they never referred to him like they would a rabbi or a professor. They refer to him as like an elderly uh, mentor. So I'm not sure what his spiritual gift was, but I'm pretty convinced it was not teaching or preaching. So he was not the pastor at Ephesus. He would have put himself under Timothy, who Paul put in charge as the pastor of Ephesus, and then Onesimus, who followed uh, Timothy. So he would have been under Timothy, under Onesimus, a member of the congregation, which would be pretty intimidating if you're the pastor and you're preaching sermons about Jesus to a guy in the congregation that was with Jesus in all the stories in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It would have been incredibly intimidating, but Timothy and Onesimus apparently did it. But John bloomed where God planted him. He bloomed uh, in the city. I've shown you pictures of this, the, the uh, part of the downtown. There would have been the seat of government there in Ephesus that John would have seen that exact scene numerous times. This is Main Street going from the harbor in Ephesus down to the central business district, John would have walked on those exact stones a thousand times going through the central part of Ephesus that you can walk through today. This is going up towards the hill, towards the Colosseum that you can go sit in today uh, and just sit and observe nature or something going on down on the stage. But inevitably, John would have been in that stadium for different events, different cultural events or plays or things that he would have gone to as just a citizen of Ephesus. So to be able to sit in a place and walk on the same stones exactly where the Apostle Paul walked, exactly where John walked, is pretty awesome. It's why Ephesus is an incredible place to go visit. And this is a view from the top row in the uh, Colosseum there, the uh, amphitheater in Ephesus, uh, where uh, John would have sat, where Paul would have sat during his time there, uh, and John and Paul never would have overlapped. We're not aware of any time where Paul was in Ephesus when uh, John was in Ephesus. So it appears that when John or when uh, Paul was in his captivity, would have been the earliest that John would have shown up in Ephesus, and then after Peter, or after uh, Paul's execution, John would have stayed in Ephesus for several decades for his ministry. Uh, he also spent time on Patmos in prison. Patmos is an island. I've got it there showing you southwest of Ephesus. That's where the emperor uh, Domitian sentenced him to prison just for being a Christian. Uh, that's a view up on the hill looking down to the old Roman harbor there on the island of Patmos. 
So that's the harbor that the prison ship would have come into. Uh, today, it's a tourist destination. Back in John's day, it was the Roman equivalent of Alcatraz. They would put prisoners on this island that couldn't swim away. They couldn't break out of jail. They're stuck on the island. And that island is where John had the vision that then got written down in the book of the Revelation. You can see how scraggly it is, how rocky it is in that little harbor. Uh, and then there's a cave they call the Cave of the Apostle John. I've researched the heck out of it. I'm not convinced it's where uh, Paul had the vision of the apocalypse for the book of Revelation. It's a cave on the island they found in the fourth century. And the people in Constantine's era said, I think this is John's cave. And so they built a church there. So you go today and there's an Eastern Orthodox church there or a little chapel uh, that uh, makes it look nothing like a cave from the first century. But people go there because Paul or uh, John was definitely on the island. Uh, and who knows if he would have gotten out of jail to go to that cave, but it's close enough to where he was that people do little places of worship there, so I wanted to show it to you. Uh, later in life, he wrote his gospel when he was in his 70s. He wrote his three epistles when he was in his early 80s, both of which was when he was in Ephesus, and then wrote the book of the Revelation in his late 80s very late in life in our culture, very late in life in his culture, very late in life, because in the first century, the average male did not live to see the age of 50. So for John to be that prolific in his 70s and 80s is really significant. Epilogue. I normally give you application in the epilogue. In the last three or four minutes I got, I just want to end with John's life and one little quote because if you go to Ephesus, they will show you John's tomb. I have researched this, and all I can tell you is that it's probably likely that John was buried in the area. He's the only disciple not killed. He's the only disciple of Jesus that died of natural causes around 100 AD when he was in his late 80s. We don't know exactly how old he was. We don't know if it was 100 AD or 101 AD. We just know it was around then. And we know he was buried in Ephesus around the graveyard where his tombstone now stands. The tombstone that you see on the screen uh, was not labeled until Constantine in the 4th century. Uh, there's also not a clear record that there was any kind of monument there. So I can't say that's exactly where John was buried, but I can say like Peter being somewhere close to St. Peter's uh, Basilica in Rome, like Paul being somewhere close to St. Paul's Basilica outside the wall that I taught you two weeks ago, Paul's grave was somewhere around there. John's grave is somewhere really close around there. So I have no problem with people uh, memorializing his grave there. I just can't tell you if you dug there, if you'd find anything remotely close to the first century or him. This is the same tombstone looking away the other direction. If you go there, there's a lot of runs around it. I want to end on what the church fathers say was the quote most well-known or most attributed to the Apostle John. So multiple of the church fathers, the guys that were preachers and teachers right after John died, wrote stories about him, told stories about him, and the one quote they all echo is this one. Beloved children, love one another. It is the Lord's command, and if this alone be done, it is enough. 
for the guy that built love and truth around his gospel, his epistles, and the book of Revelation. It's a great way to end because the older he got, the more he focused on our love for non-believers. It's a great lesson. Next week, the Gospel of John. You're going to love it. Hope you can join me then. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the chance to come and study your work, for the chance to come and study this disciple John that was so significant in human history, so significant in Bible history. And we just pray that you would use his life as an inspiration to us, as life lessons for us, to motivate us as we study his gospel for the next couple of months and as we learn more about him and his perspective. We hope that you'll use this to help us put it into better context to see him through you, or to see you through him, to see you through his gospel, to see your truth through the words of the Holy Spirit that John penned. We thank you for the opportunity. We thank you for your love. We thank you for preserving the stories and the memories of this disciple of yours and the gospel that he wrote so that we can study it. And we're so thankful for your name. We ask you to bless us in, in this endeavor. In Jesus' name, we ask these things. Amen. Thank you all so much for being with us. I look forward to seeing you next week. Love you all. God bless. Bye-bye. This has been a presentation of the Biblical Foundations Bible Study, online at biblicalfoundationsbiblestudy.com. All rights reserved. Thank you.